Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about politics, policy, and your health. My name is Jake Williams. I'm your host. It is good to be back. We took our scheduled summer break and it ended up bleeding into the fall. Sorry. But perhaps I've made up for it a bit with a spectacular guest to get us restarted. Liz Plank, that's her name. She's an award-winning journalist and producer at Vox.com. And she just published her first book, For the Love of Men, A New Vision for Mindful Masculinity. Toxic masculinity, or as she calls it, idealized masculinity, is a pretty bad thing for the health of both men and women. And in this book, Liz presents what I thought was a very empathetic approach to improving society by helping men become who they truly want to be through a Liz coined phrase, mindful masculinity. We talk about her travels and social experiments around the world that she invested into writing this book. Plus, we chat about things like TikTok, the social media platform where she really thrives. All right, let's get to it. Here's my chat with Liz Plank in downtown Denver. So, Liz Plank. Yes. We're sitting here in Denver. Yes. This is your first time in Denver? It is. And New York is home. New York is home. Very different from Denver. <laughs> and, and so what, you know, coincidentally, I had drinks last night from a friend of mine who lives in New York. Okay. And what he was saying was that, sure, this is a city. Right. But when you're on the street, there's just so much, so many fewer people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't feel as claustrophobic as New York does. Yeah, I was just actually, I had a little dinner with myself last night and I had this exact same, I was like, why is this so pleasant? Why is this so amazing? It's Friday night, I'm sitting at the bar, I have like space to like eat a full meal and it just was like, I was like, oh, it's not New York. Um, there's like actual space to breathe and to, to live and to be. Um, and New York is, I mean, depending on the area. Um, I live in the East Village, so it's like just a lot of people. I. Used to live in Elpit City. Okay. Uh, okay. And I was out there for two or three years. Okay. And, um, you know, I definitely feel like my average heart rate is lower yeah, when I'm here oh, in sure. Denver. For but sure. on the other hand, and this might sound weird, but whenever I go back to New York and I'm kind of like navigating on foot through the streets, yeah. I feel like I'm like a blood cell in a larger organism. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like I'm just a, one of the many yeah. blood cells like gushing towards whatever yeah. avenue or street, you know, but it feels kind of good though. It does feel good. And, and like, I, that's the thing I, New Yorkers will say, I mean, a lot of us will say, which is like, it's addictive. You hate it, but you can't live without it. Right. So it's, uh, you get angry and annoyed and you're like jaded and tired all the time, uh, and overwhelmed, but you also like kind of love it. Like when you go elsewhere for too long, you kind of miss that, yeah, that pace that keeps you sort of alive. Um, but I think it's, 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 it's not for everyone. It's, it's not for everyone for sure. I had an incident towards the end where it kind of told me that maybe it was time to move on. Mm. And that incident was <clears throat> I was in line um, at a subway station okay. at like a kiosk to get like my card right. refilled or whatever. And someone was in front of me and she was kind of fumbling and taking forever and she couldn't figure it out. Okay. And I just kind of in a semi, I'll, I'll be generous, I'll say semi pleasant fa- fashion, yeah. like um, uh, inserted myself into the situation. I'm like, this is, this is what you push. You push this button, that button, okay. this button, that button, that button. There you go. You're all good. Okay. And, and then, and then I was kind of trying to be polite, but yeah. really my, the, you get it, it was, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. And then I just felt terrible for the rest of the day. I was like, maybe, maybe I should, you know, go elsewhere. And I did. Wow. Uh, right. anyway, enough yeah. about me. Yeah. 
You're in New York. You work for Vox. What do you cover at Vox? I cover mostly politics. Um, I uh, have done several digital series, uh, mostly when when I started at Vox three years ago. um, I was covering the 2016 election. Uh, A lot has changed uh, since then. And we've been what seems like in an election year every year since then. Yeah, it never uh, yeah so uh, yeah, I cover digital. Uh, I do digital content and, and, and digital series, mostly around politics with a, a specific interest in identity issues and women's issues, in uh, masculinity, in sexual orientation, and how all those identities affect your life uh, in America. And so... Um, how did you have the time and energy and focus to do a book on top of doing what sounds like a pretty busy job? Yeah, uh, I don't think I kind of lived my life for the last four years. So I, I started working on this book actually before, right before I started at Vox. And so it's been a, an intense couple of years. And yeah, I'm not... Um, I don't think writing a book is for everyone and I'm glad that I did it. I don't know if I want to do it again or if I want to do it again, I think I want to do it with more of a team or more of a support system. Um, It can be really difficult to uh, be alone with your thoughts, to be alone with your work when you're used to collaborating with people and getting more feedback from people. You know, when you're writing for the internet, it's very different than writing um, for, you know, something that even by the time I finished the book, it took you know, almost a year for it to come to be printed, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that entire process. So it's just totally different. Um, and it was a lot of, I, I mean, I had no weekends. I, I, those didn't exist, um, for me mm-hmm. for four years and, um, I'm slowly adjusting, uh, back to my real life. And, and I don't, I never want to do that again. I don't think it's worth it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's worth mm-hmm. it for anyone to, um, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of us are caught in, the expectation that we should be working all the time. And, and if whenever we're not working, there's something wrong or we feel guilty, but, but actually it makes you a far more productive person, I, I think. Uh, and you're working much better if you actually take time to rest um, and, and, and have time to rest. So you work in multiple mediums. And yeah. how do you feel about the future of the book as a medium? Ooh, I think the publishing industry is really interesting. I love books. See, I love, I'm your prototypical, like, I look at three screens at once, like I'm uh, consuming, uh, you know, hours and hours of content. And, and, and I spend a lot of time on the internet and I'm a big fan of social media and that's how I get a lot of my news and, and how I communicate. Um, but at the same time, I love books, like books actually in a certain sense can be the sort of, um, answer to, I think what a lot of people are feeling, which is overwhelmed. Um, and so I think books, serve a really important purpose, um, in tandem with the increase in technology and like digital content. And I think it feels good for a lot of people to just not look at a screen. Like mm-hmm. we need time where we're not. Yeah. Uh, and it feels really nice. I when tell my not. daughters that all the time. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean that, you know, I think it's important for us to notice how we're feeling. And the thing with screens is that you can just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and, mm-hmm. and never really take time to think about how you're feeling. But usually, I don't know, after I've, I've looked at Instagram, I rarely feel like better about my life. Um, after I've read a book, I don't know, usually feel, you feel pretty nourished. good. You feel nourished. Exactly. Right? And you feel like at one with yourself instead of, um, I think sometimes caught in, in, in trying to prove yourself, which is what social media I, I, I think can, can turn into really easily. 
I feel like you prove yourself pretty well on TikTok. Thank you. I've seen your, you're very kinetic. You're very, it's, you know, it's a lot of physicality going on in these posts. <laughs> I love TikTok. TikTok's actually in a weird way. It, TikTok for me feels very different from every other uh, social media mm-hmm. um, platform. And I really enjoy it because it's really creative. And I enjoy it because it's not, you know, everywhere else I kind of have to be political or yeah. it's a lot about my work and, and what I do. Yeah. And TikTok is, is, is more sort of my real life and, and it's, um, it's more raw. It's not as filtered. It, it, it really feels more real yeah. than most platforms. And I really crave that. I'm craving, um, I'm, I'm, I'm craving that authenticity. And I feel like I don't, I don't see it on Instagram for sure. Most Instagram, yeah, I mean, it's super curated and it's super perfect. And that's not, that's not our life. That's not anyone's life. Um, and then Twitter is like, everyone's pissed off. Yeah. Like everyone's like better than everyone else. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this like, everything's sarcastic and look, I love it. Like go on my Twitter. Like I'm just being the worst. Like I, I, I play into all of those different cultures. Cause those are the, those are the cultures on each platform. But TikTok is like, I don't know. It, it's just, it started with a bunch of people, I mean, in their dorm, dorm rooms, right? And it's people who are regular people, right? Even celebrities who are on TikTok, like it, they don't, people don't like celebrities on TikTok. There's a really interesting really? subculture of people who are, if you want, subtweeting or sub, are you getting sub too TikTok. For TikTok then? I mean, no, I don't like over 30,000 people. Yes, I do. I mean, like, to- but that's like low, that's on the low end. Like, oh, and, really? Okay. And I don't get like, so I met up with these 19 year olds who are TikTok. Like they were, yeah, in the dorm rooms. They're um, Frankie and Asaf. And like, if you are on TikTok, you've seen their videos. And they're just, they remind me of like next gen, like Kyle Mooney and like, you know, like, yeah. a, like a comedic sketch group, but that's like oh in gosh. their dorm. I'm so old. Like you said, next gen Kyle Mooney. Kyle I know. Mooney Kyle is Mooney like, is. He's like, how old is I, I don't know, 30. <laughs> is it, well, not 30. He's in his 30s, probably. Okay. All right. Um, but anyway, it's, but the, these people, yeah, don't have expensive gear. They don't have expensive, yeah. like, and, and they don't even clean up the mess in the background. They just do it. And it's, it's super, it's super heartwarming to just see people be themselves and, and be able to build, um, followings and be able to build a message around or a platform or, or around what they believe in and who they are without having all of these. Yeah. I mean, it costs money to be a content creator, right? Like if you want to do well on Instagram, you, you have to have a night, like it has to look a certain way. And yeah, there, there's just no barrier to entry is what it feels like with TikTok, which I really love. And so your book. Yeah. Sorry. I can go on and on. This is not. Well, about actually TikTok. I, had yeah, an- yeah. I had another like medium question about the book. Do you, is there an audio version? There is, yes. Do you read it or someone else I reads did, it? I did, and it was the most painful experience. Yeah, how long does that take? Like weeks. It took me, I think, in total 45 hours wow. of recording. And um, yeah, I'm French-Canadian. English is my second language. I speak it very fluently now. Yeah. But there are a lot of words that I didn't realize I was saying the wrong way. Um, and so that was super annoying. And yeah. so it meant a lot of retakes for certain words that I just I was like, oh, I... I didn't say cognitive in the right way. It's cognitive. Yes. I, I say cognitive, like in French, it's a, it's a yeah. So anyway, uh-huh. it's super boring. It sounds Russian. It sounds Russian. Yeah. Yes, it does. I There's do a Russian lot of ha. Huh. 
Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I do read it and I appreciate it. If you, uh, I, I hope it's enjoyable uh, to listen to because it took a lot of time. I, yeah, I, I read it. I didn't, I okay. didn't but, but just speaking with you, I'm like, I bet you the audiobook's good because I can see you being good on the audio. Oh, thank you. And, you know, getting into it, um, you know, if you look at the cover and yeah. you just look at the, you know, bare bones of your profile, mm-hmm. um, you know, feminist from, uh, uh, Quebec, yeah. um, writes book about masculinity. I couldn't see how a man can approach that book, like in a crouch, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh boy, mm-hmm. oh boy, there's rocks will be thrown. Here. Yeah. Um, but I think what I discovered and what everybody would discover, mm-hmm. um, when they crack it open is that it's incredibly empathetic. And, um, how did you get to that place, that perspective of a, a you know, a, a man's perspective yeah. on how to be. Yeah. Well, by doing my job, which is reporting and, and listening, asking questions and then listening to the answer. Um, I did not come into this project with the same, uh, I think level of, of empathy to be completely honest. I had a lot of empathy for women and I had a lot of empathy for women's pain. And I still do, obviously none of that is, you know, empathy is not a zero sum game. It's not because you have empathy for a certain group that you have less left left over for another. Um, but through really asking questions that to men that to me were very simple and, um, I don't know, felt like questions that I had had the opportunity to, ask myself, ask other women and, and talk to other women about, and even talk to men about, I felt like, well, I didn't feel like I just saw men really scramble to, to answer these questions. Like these simple questions, like, what does it mean to be a man? You know, yeah. when did you know that you were a man? What's hard about being a man, right? Yeah. Those are, you know, what's hard about being a woman. I could talk to you forever about that. I, I probably talked about it to the, you know, my barista while I was waiting for her to make my coffee, right? These are yeah. uh, very, um, the the barrier to entry, right? To these conversations is pretty lo- low and, and it's a mainstream conversation. But what I realize is that, for men, that just wasn't, that just wasn't happening. And in many, uh, cases, I was the first person that they had ever asked them those questions. Mm -hmm. They were the first person that they were talking about their problems with. And that to me just signaled a really, really important gap in the conversation that, that I needed to, to fill and, and that we need to fill as a society and, and as a culture, um, because it's, it's causing a lot of uh, the world's biggest problems. And there's a lot of pain that men are feeling and whatever pain is, is, is not transformed, right. It will be transmitted. And so I'm not saying that every bad thing that every man has ever done um, is coming from a place of being in pain. And if we help him process his pain, he'd be able to be a better man. But a lot of it is coming from that place. And a lot of it could be prevented. And, but if we only have a conversation about gender equality, that is synonymous with, you know, gender equals women, we're actually never going to be able to be impactful with their activism uh, when, when, when it comes to these questions. And so to me, I just, I see a huge n- need for the feminist movement and for the progressive movement and for us as a society to, to really expand our understanding of gender uh, in, in, in a real way that, that includes everybody. And so when you asked men, you know, what's hard about being a man, I, yeah. I really loved uh, the social experiment that you did 
in New York and the conversations, yeah. the similar conversations you had around the world where you asked men that question, what did they say? They would say all kinds of different things, right? So the experience of being a man is similar in, in, in the same way to being a, a woman, which is there's not one experience, right? There's so many intersecting identities. Um, and having an intersectional approach to this is, is the, to masculinity is, is just as important as having, uh, an intersectional lens on feminism and on women. So I, I would hear a lot of different things. I would hear, I mean, one of the first answers that really struck me, um, when I asked, um, this one particular, you know, middle-aged guy from, from, from England, um, who just happened to be in New York, um, I said, what's hard about being a man? And he said, other men. And I found that to be really revealing. And this is not to say that women are never part of <laughs> the, the problem. Uh, we are all, swimming in the sea of, of, of gender stereotypes and we all reinforce, reinforce this culture. But I think that that made me ask myself, I don't know that, I guess I had, I had assumed that men felt safe around other men and that the only people who felt unsafe around men were women or gender non-binary people and maybe gay men uh, or LGBTQ men. But what I realized is that even straight, cisgender, white, like the men with the most quote unquote privilege in our society, they also, uh, many of them feel unsafe around other men. And to me, that was, um, that was what needed really to be examined. And, and again, it's not, I'm not in those spaces, you know, I, I've never been in a fraternity. Uh, yeah. I've never been on a, on a, you know, in a locker room, male locker room. So all I can you know, all, all, all I could do was talk to men about those experiences. But what really became clear to me is that there was a hierarchy, not just, you know, in terms of women and men and men tend to be or men are at the top and women are at the bottom. Um, that's how patriarchy works. But also that there's a patri there's a system of, and a hierarchy amongst men that that doesn't get as much attention and that a lot of men don't feel particularly good in. and and they might not even enjoy the patriarchy as much as yeah. they're told that they do and that as much as women think that they do yeah i don't I, know what do you think do you enjoy the patriarchy no <laughs> i mean i i don't think it's helping me yeah you know i don't think it's really helping anybody i mean that's why i was i was really fascinated by the sections in your book where you talk about how men relate to other men. Because I think when people think about feminism or they think about masculinity, they think about how men relate to women, which is also yeah. a super important topic. Yes. But you really dove into that, how men relate to men yeah. um, in ways that you already mentioned, but also about how um, uh, over time uh, relationships evolve or deteriorate and loneliness sets in and, and there can be contributions to a wide array of, of mental health problems mm. that are associated with a certain type of masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's a whole chapter that I, it was one of the first chapters I, I wrote about the, uh, that I wrote. Um, and I ended up calling it, if the patriarchy is so great, why is it making you die? Yeah. Which is still a question I, you know, I, I have when, when I do approach these conversations, um, with, with men and, and with women. Um, I mean, I think a lot of women know that the patriarchy is not great, but again, I think that they believe that men want to preserve it. And, um, but, but, but yeah, the, the, the patriarchy causes all kinds of hugely 
terrible effects on women um, in, in terms of obviously, you know, the, their their health and their safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are more likely, you know, w- w- women who are victims of violence, of, of domestic violence, of, you know, that they walk out in the street and they're not even, you know, safe. Um, that's a huge problem. The other side of the conversation is that patriarchy also instills a certain kind of behavior, not just of men towards women, but also of men towards themselves and men Mm -hmm. towards other men. And so we use this term toxic masculinity to talk about the system of what I think is a better term is idealized masculinity, Mm -hmm. because um, I think toxic masculinity implies it's just a hard way to start a conversation. I think Um, probably not with you because you like have read all the things and and are aware um, and probably are able to overcome the defensiveness that you might feel when you hear that. But I think most people, most people don't. And even women, a lot of women don't like that term. So idealized masculinity is basically a system of, again, there's ideals about how to be a woman, right? That you have to look a certain way, act a certain way. And of course, women uh, either fulfill those ideals or don't, but often they are punished uh, if they don't and they're rewarded if they do. So if you're a thin woman, if you're a white woman, if you are, uh, you know, put a lot of energy into your appearance and appear a certain way, you're going to be rewarded. If you're a woman that has, uh, that, that, that breaks with those things, right? That, that is, I don't know, like Hillary Clinton, very assertive, uh, is not, uh, you know, uh, interested in, I mean, necessarily thinking about what she looks like, but she's interested in being having a a type of political leadership that women, we don't always see in our society. We've never had a female president. Um, That causes problems. And the same thing happens for men. So men are expected to obviously be assertive, to be dominant, to win, uh, to be aggressive and to be, get laid all the time and be adored by women all the time and have a lot of sex with women. Um, So they're expected obviously to be straight and every kind of, any kind of deviation from that is, uh, is, uh, you know, things that you probably were told when you were young, which is every man I spoke to was called, um, you know, a fag was called a pussy. It was called these, uh, really demeaning terms, um, that are, that are, that are very gendered, right. In the same way that a woman being called a, you know, what, which I was called a slut or I was called those things, right. A bimbo, um, you know, the F word, the P word, these are terms that are also very gendered and that, um, are there to police uh, men and police mm-hmm. boys mm-hmm. and form, you know, shape them and, and keep them to conform and keep them in line with a certain kind of ideal of masculinity. And so the long winded answer is, yeah. you know, that, 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 that ideal is associated with a whole host of health problems. So that, that's yeah. what I was getting. Yeah. So like, you know, yeah. uh, if I was sitting here, um, if a third person was here yeah. and they were, perhaps a you know conservative male yeah uh, they might react to 95 percent of what you just said and be mm-hmm. like you laid out all those things but what's the what's the, the problem, problem for you know yeah, 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 for, yeah. for men um, you know what's the wrong what's wrong with dominance mm-hmm. why are you trying to feminize men mm-hmm. and you got to it there there at the end you you um, in the book you cite um, at a not just an, an, at an individual level but at a population level how um, as toxic ma- toxic masculinity rises, mm-hmm. so do uh, negative health outcomes. Yeah, and you map it out by country, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, well, so feminism actually, um, you know, does not hurt men uh, yeah. if you just look at the data yeah. and at the research. So I, in the course of over the course of writing this book, went to Iceland, which is the most feminist country 
on Earth uh, for the last 10 years, the World Health, uh, the, the World Economic uh, Forum has ranked at number one in terms of a gender equality index based on you know political, social, and economic uh, differences between the sexes. And so it's a very equal country. And I try to go save men from feminism because I know from all the Fox News that I've watched um, that uh, you know feminism is very bad for men and yeah. female empowerment is very bad for men and men are dying from it. Uh, and men are you know it's the biggest threat to ma- to masculinity. Um, and in fact, men in Iceland did not want to be saved um, from feminism. In fact, they wanted more feminism. They wanted uh, even more equality. They were enjoying a lot of the benefits uh, that come from being in a gender equal society, uh, such as expanded parental leave. You know, yeah. suddenly they can spend more time with their kids and um, they are able to share domestic, ta- you know, uh, chores around the house. They're able to share in, you know, raising the next generation of human beings and uh, be equal participants in their household and be equal partners, right? Like those are, um, one of the, a side note of that is gay couples tend to be happier than straight couples. And that's actually, uh, because, and, and that might, might seem surprising to a lot of people because they still face a lot of discrimination. Um, but they tend to share domestic chores more equally mm-hmm. based on what they like doing. Yeah. Um, they are less, you know, uh, kind of slaves to these to these roles and these expectations that are preordained before you even enter a relationship. And that if you want to deviate from it, you know, you have to justify it. You have to explain it, not just in your relationship, but outside of your relationship. So, um, and, and, and men in Iceland, uh, live longer than, than men in the rest of Europe. They actually have the smallest gender, uh, gap, gender expectancy life gap. So, Across the world, men live uh, less long than, than women, um, of course, except in uh, countries where femicide is uh, still rampant uh, in places like India. Um, but but generally speaking, men basically have shorter lifespans. And that's for there are biological reasons for that that, that have nothing to do with, uh, you know, how we raise them. But a lot of it does. And a lot of it is. Uh, coming from ways that we've decided to organize our society. I mean, the WHO calls it man-made, uh, you know, d- diseases, diseases and differences. Yeah. So men have, uh, are less likely to go to the doctor. Men are less likely to go when they do go to the doctor, they go for less long. They're less likely to wear seatbelts. They're more likely to get into accidents. They're more likely to choose, uh, professions that have high levels of accidents. And what we've seen, if I can just cite one study that I think is so fascinating, um, in oil rigs, uh, which is obviously one of the most male dominated professions, uh, in, in, in the world, but in the United States particularly, they offered men in those oil rigs basically emotional support. They offered them, uh, moments to have support and therapy, uh, in groups where they could talk about what they were feeling, or talk about what they were struggling with, with some of the things that they, you know, whether it was at work or outside of work, that they could share those things with each other. So it made them more emotionally vulnerable and helped them be able to, uh, be open and about those vulnerabilities. It decreased the amount of accidents that happened in those, in those uh, facilities. It also made the men more productive. They were able to, you know, j- just because you're more safe, <laughs> right? And you're able to ask for help, let's say, instead of just taking a risk and it ending terribly. Um, it didn't make them like, you know, not be able to do their jobs. It actually made them, you know, made them far more likely to live longer at that job and be more productive at that job. And so you start wondering, you know, how does this, um, 
pressure to never be vulnerable, this pressure to always, to, to, to never ask questions, right? Yeah. And to always know what to do. Yeah. Um, sure, that can have, you know, emotional impacts on your life, but it also has physical impacts on your life. It might, it might mean that you, yeah, you never go seek out um, uh, mental health or physical help from the doctor, that you end up, um, you know, uh, uh, avoiding that. And, and, and it can really just shorten, it, it does shorten the lifespan of men in, in America and across the world. And so, it's um it's not just a it's not just a a conversation about how you know men, let men cry and let men show their emotions this is like let men be let men be human and and let them live uh to their full potential as as human beings yeah i was really struck by uh, something you wrote along those lines which was i'm not trying to tell men who to be i want them to become free to become who they really are which really struck a, co- a chord for me yeah When men do seek out um, uh, mental health help, um, I've learned something new in your book, which is the American Psychological Association has actually changed uh, their guidelines for men and boys and the way therapy is administered. Can you describe that? Yeah. So only a few months ago, um, basically the, uh, yeah, American Psychological Association, which is the association of, you know, all the therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, in the United States, um, they have guidelines when it comes to female patients. They have guidelines when it comes to LGBTQ uh, patients. They have guidelines when it comes to, you know, an aging population and, you know, older folks. And, and, and when I say they have guidelines, it, it means that they are instructed how, let's say that you have a queer uh, person who needs therapy about how not to reinforce certain stereotypes about, um, you know, a, a, about being gay or being bisexual or being trans, right? How to handle basically those populations in a way that, that, that takes their life experience into consideration. And, until very recently, there were no guidelines when it came to men and when it came to male patients, particularly, and how to, again, make sure that we're not reinforcing some of the stereotypes about masculinity because therapists, right, are part of our, a part of our society. They've been socialized in the same world and they often, um, just like everyone else, right? We know doctors, uh, reaffirm or reassert certain stereotypes in the way that they care for, for people's teachers do it too. We all do it. Um, but it's important to be able to raise awareness and at least offer guidelines to not to do it right. Or, or to draw attention to tools or, 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 you know, offer them support if they, if they need to know more information about it. And so the, yeah, the American psychological association basically, um, they use the label traditional masculinity to talk about, again, what we, in popular culture referred to as toxic masculinity or what I refer to as idealized masculinity, um, in, in the book, which is this, yeah, pursuit of, of, of status, this pursuit of, um, you know, aggression and dominance and, um, and, and violence and basically drawing attention for, for, yeah, therapists to make sure that they're not, they're not, they're not, uh, living by those rules when they, when they're talking to their male patients and also that male patients might not, uh, have the same. So ma- men are less likely to go to therapy than, than women, which right. is probably not a surprise to anyone uh, mm-hmm. listening. And, um, there's really interesting data that shows that men actually prefer female therapists, which yeah. is pretty interesting and is reflective of, 
uh, a lot of the um, interviews that I did just with men, not even about therapy, but that a lot of men, I don't know if it's the case with you, um, but men especially who are not in relationships with women. So men who are single or men who, um, you know, uh, are not married, their closest friend often is a woman, right? So they will, yeah, have a lot of guy friends around um, and 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 be very close to them and hang out with them all the time. But when they have a problem, mm-hmm. when when yeah. shit hits the fan, um, they will go to that one female friend or or uh, you know multiple of them uh, or, or or a few of them in order to have that that guidance because a lot of men don't feel comfortable at being vulnerable with other men. Yeah, a lot of men. Um, have have been vulnerable with other men and then the what's happened in return is that they're um yeah they've been rejected mm-hmm. they've been humiliated um right they've been called the f word the p word oh just like toughen up why are you saying this to me or, or a lot of men i think also don't know how to handle that kind of emotional vulnerability because they've never even been given, been given permission to feel it. Right. So it's, it's not uh that they have bad intentions, but they just can't handle it or they've not been properly supported um, and, and properly educated when it comes to, you know, emotional vulnerability and emotional intelligence, about how to receive a difficult story, right? If you are sharing something with me, that's really difficult. If you have suicidal, uh, you know, uh, thoughts, if you, your dad just died or your sister's sick or you're going through something really difficult. Um, you know, who are you going to go to to talk about that stuff? Um, it's probably not, there's probably, you know, one or two people, right? And you're yeah, lucky if you yeah. have one or two people and men, um, it often is a woman or it's their female partner, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, and a lot of women, uh, have bought, appreciated this conversation and have told me that they, yeah, have bought the book and for their husbands or for their boyfriends because they are in many respects doing the emotional labor uh, instead of men. Um, if men were able to build more in-depth friendships with other men and, and just with other people generally, um, then their female partners wouldn't be the first line of defense, um, for, for a lot of this. And, and sometimes women, you know, your female partner obviously can, can be that, but it, it can lead to difficulties in the marriage that maybe could be avoidable or, or, or could be diminished if there's more of a support network in the way that, that women often have that support network. Um, because we're not as, um, we're not as afraid of connection with other women, obviously, because our society doesn't um, punish us if we do. Our, the, our, our society doesn't, um, I mean, of course, there's discrimination against uh, gay women and women who are queer, but there's not as much of a, we have a little bit more space to hold hands in public, to yeah. be really close with each other, to go to sleepovers and do things that are very, you know, uh, that that where, where we have a lot of intimacy. It's not seen as negatively that, as it is between men. And you delve into the unfortunate and violent consequences of um, idealized masculinity or toxic masculinity mm-hmm. um, that result from things like men being um, unable to share and exchange um, feelings. Uh, and you touch on how uh, this, when mixed with guns, mm-hmm. um, can lead to uh, tragic consequences. 85% of people who commit suicide with a gun are men. Mm-hmm. And you um, have an anecdote uh, in the book about how 
uh, toxic masculinity is leveraged actually in the marketing yeah. of guns, 100%. which made me sad slash mad, but please yeah. share. Again, we have a conversation. We need to have more of this conversation. It's not, it's, we're not, we haven't solved this issue, but we do have a conversation around marketing and how we are marketing to girls and how we are marketing to women. We have now, you know, entire, the entire magazine industry. Um, and, and I mean, just retail in general and rethinking the way that they, that they are portraying women in advertisements, rethinking the messages that they're sending to women and girls. So, you know, instead of using anti-aging, they're using, I don't know, another term. I don't know what it is now. Um, they're using, uh, models who look like real women. Uh, and not to say that, you know, very thin women are not real women, but it, it was only one kind of women that we were seeing. And that kind of woman was often photoshopped and, and, and even sometimes didn't even look like herself <laughs> in real person. And so we saw those videos, we raised awareness to this issue and we've seen it change very, very rapidly. Right. Um, and again, I believe that we need to have the same kind of conversation around the marketing to men and how we market products to men and what kind of insecurities we're feeding in, right? How corporations are exploiting the vulnerabilities and the social scripts and the expectations that we place on men in our society to sell them more products. And of course, we could talk about, you know, protein shakes and, uh, you know, I don't know. The, I mean, there's a rise in eating disorders and there's a rise in, in, in men and pro- I, I just, I just <laughs> had one. I love protein. Um, but we, we could talk about that aspect, of course. Um, but where I think that it is extremely urgent for us to really inquire about what kind of marketing we're, 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 you know, is, is, is happening is, is with the gun industry. And we actually had a a Supreme Court case recently, or maybe now it's almost eight or nine months old, but the parents of the Newtown shooting basically, Oh, wait, was it Sandy Hook? I might be getting it wrong. One of the two awful shooting. I, I believe it's Sandy Hook, actually. There's so many, it's hard to try. Exactly. It's very, it's uh, very tragic. I, I believe it's actually Sandy Hook. So the parents in the Sandy Hook shooting uh, basically went after um, the uh, gun company, which is Bushmasters, yeah. and they have a they're owned by another big company and I'm forgetting the name, but they basically went, went, went after them for their marketing. And one of the, so one of the ads that this uh, company ran, uh, which I, I wanted to put the image in the book, but it's very expensive and complicated and pub- I don't understand publishing, uh, but you can look it up. So it was a, a, an, an ad that ran a few a few months before, or actually a few weeks before the uh, shooting happened. And it said there was a photo of a AK-47 and there was uh, the words, consider your man card reissued. Mm-hmm. And Bushmasters actually also created a whole campaign around this man card. Mm-hmm. And they uh, allowed men basically to revoke each other's man card. Um, if they didn't have a gun, it, they allowed them to, to print out a man card. It was like very nuts. Like it's very nuts. And that very gun is the gun that the shooter used to kill, right? Dozens of children, uh, and teachers also. And the, one of the, you know, if you look up the court case, one of the things that they said was, you know, Bushmasters 
didn't, you know, wasn't speaking directly to the shooter when they wrote that campaign, but the shooter knew that they were talking to him. Right. So, and that just gives me chills. Um, that just, uh, so, so, so there is now a little bit more awareness because of this Supreme court case, but still, I mean, I don't know if, if I wasn't studying this particular topic, I don't even know if I would have heard about it. Um, and this also really connects to suicide, which you've brought up. Um, the NRA, if you, are aware um, since the basically early 2000s, late 1990s, they have put a, a ban on research for the, uh, you know, for, for, for health. Uh, what's the, oh my God, I'm forgetting the, it's the altitude. For HHS. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there's a federal ban. There's a federal uh, ban uh, on, yeah. yeah, research. On federal funded research. It, right. Exactly. And if you also look at the guidelines when it comes to suicide, as you said, 80, the vast majority of people who use guns to kill themselves are men. And two thirds of gun deaths are not mass shootings. They are death by suicide. So most people who use a gun are not going out to shoot other people. A lot of them are every single day. Someone is, which is horrifying. But most of those shootings are people turning the gun on themselves. And the vast majority of those happen to be men. Mm-hmm. If you go on, again, what's the, why am I blocking? The, why am I, what's the agency's? Um, CDC. The CDC um, will have, if you go on their website right now, they will have guidelines when it comes and, and you know, just advice and, and, and uh, sort of information when it comes to the epidemic of suicide, because it is a health epidemic, obviously, given how many deaths happen in in the United States every year, they will, you will not see the word gun on there. And there are internal documents, basically, they will say, um, you know, the, the, the risk of dying by suicide is much higher for men, because they're more likely to use a lethal mean. That is the terminology that you'll see or a more violent mean, but it's a gun. It is yeah. guns. Yeah. And uh, there are internal documents also that were, you know, reporters uh, have found that that basically outlined the emails within the CDC of people saying it, it used to say gun. The first version of it did because that's the truth. And then they ended up having to take it out because they didn't want to deal with the NRA. Yeah. So there's, you know, I don't have to, you know, convince probably any one of the power of the NRA and, and how much power they have over, you know, not just our poli- our politicians, but our politics. Um, but, but yes, guns are inherently connected to, to masculinity yeah. and they're inherently connected to a male uh, suicide epidemic. And so often, you know, I was just on Capitol Hill and had the opportunity to speak to some uh, members of Congress there about, and it was female members of Congress who were Again, hosting a conversation around gender-based violence and who was in the room? Women. Who was asked to speak? Mostly women. And um, and I just, yes, gender-based violence is, you know, obviously the risk of being shot, of being murdered and being killed um, is much greater for women who are living with um, with a gun in, in, inside their homes. And, you, you know, it's going to be the guy who takes it and kills them. And it's horrifying and it's worse for women of color. And that's a big problem. But I I think that male suicide is also gender-based violence, right? Like we need to have a gendered lens when we look at the reasons why men are committing suicide and why they're using guns and, and then in our policymaking, take that into consideration so that we can, we can put a dent in these numbers. You mentioned Capitol Hill. And I feel like when there's a debate up there about feminism and masculinity, um, it's often portrayed there and, and in the associated media as some sort of zero sum game. Mm-hmm. Like if, if, um, if, uh, 
toxic masculinity is abated, then somehow men lose something. Mm-hmm. How do we, if you, if you see it the same way, how do we get past this frame of zero sum? I mean, I literally every single day, I feel like this is what I'm, uh, I'm fighting against, not just the example that you're laying out, but also I think progressives also see a zero sum game. A lot of people, I, I get them all the time and every event I speak at, there's someone who will ask me this question and say, why is it women's job to talk about men? Why do we have to talk about men? Look at all these problems that women have. And I fully understand where uh, those people are coming from. And I, I also fully understand where the people who are coming from. And, and like, I, I understand that there's a feeling that, that empathy is a zero sum game that, that if we somehow spend time talking about men, that that means we're not talking about women, but that's such a, it's such an individualistic way to see the world. It's such a capitalistic way to see the world too. As if, you know, if we take away as if giving to someone else is not going to benefit you, right? Giving to the poor, for example, right? When we think about even uh, income inequality, Reducing income inequality in our society has huge ripple effects for everyone. It makes our societies better. The same thing occurs for gender equality. If we have men who have a vision of masculinity in which they don't have to hurt women, in which they don't have to hurt themselves, in which they can be fully human and be fully in touch with who they are as human beings and reach their full potential as human beings, that world is so much better for the women and girls in it. And yes, we should be spending time and money and attention on women and girls. We need so we need more of that. Um, there is there is still you know levels of discrimination in every single industry and in every single you know uh, part of our society. But I think that we are like I think that we are we are shooting ourselves in the foot if we think that just spending time talking to women and girls about how to be empowered (laughs) and changing what it means to be a girl and a woman in the world is, and then never talking to what, you know, and changing and evolving what it means to be a man in the world that, 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 that will not, first of all, be counterproductive. Uh, Sorry, first of all, just be like, a you know, we're, we're, we're wasting a lot of potential that we we could be spending on, but also it can be counterproductive. Right. And I think that that's what we're seeing with the rise of the all right, we're seeing it with the, you know, who, who is our president right now and how he's, I believe the best poster child for idealized masculinity and the values that it stands for. And, and, and across the world, we're seeing a lot of men be angry. Like I'm wearing a shirt right now that says, you see a girl, I see the future. And, uh, there's a lot of these shirts around, right? The future is female. Most of us think they're cute. A lot of girls are wearing them very young. It's almost like not cool anymore to wear a feminist t-shirt if you're a young girl. Cause it's like, of course I'm a feminist, like whatever. Yeah. But I think that we're underestimating how many people feel threatened by that and how many people are using those t-shirts and are using the attention, um, on, on women, um, and the lack of attention on, on men and boys to be better men and boys as a reason to, 
uh, believe that 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 women are that feminism is to blame, right? That yeah. that female empowerment is costing men and boys their freedom and um, their livelihood when it's really that that's not the case at all. But we're there's a there's a lot of people who believe that, and that's why Jordan Peterson is selling out you know auditoriums around the world. Um, Who's Jordan Peterson? Jordan Peterson is the most uh, read Canadian author of all time. Um, that's a fact. And you know who else is a Canadian author? Me, but who cares? I'm a first time author. But you know who else is a Canadian author? Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Right? Margaret Atwood. So Jordan Peterson has sold more books yeah. um, in, in, in the last, you know, year than, 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 than them. And so that is... Um, and what is he, for those who don't know? Yeah, sorry. So Jordan Peterson is basically, uh, stands for a lot of different things, but he's a right-wing, uh, really rabid conservative. I, I, he's been called a thought leader, um, but thinker, he's a professor, and he believes in uh, that basically teaching uh, our children about tolerance, that teaching them about equality, that teaching them about feminism, that teaching them about racism is brainwashing them and that parents should take them out of those classes immediately. And I'm not even, I mean, this is, I'm paraphrasing, but this is a direct quote that he told Tucker Carlson um, last year. He believes that trans people should not, uh, we should not be using the pronouns that they uh, prefer or that anyone's preferred pronouns should be used. Um, he believes that men should toughen up. He thinks that uh, women are chaos and whatever is female is chaos and men are um, the more rational and, uh, you know, important people in, in our society. And so he, be- he wants to go you know, I think he's responding to male pain for sure. That's why he's so popular, but he is offering, I believe the wrong antidote to a real problem, which, which is the, the male pain, the male, um, I think confusion. There's a lot of men who are confused and boys who are confused. Yeah. When they see the future is female and then they see that they, um, yeah, don't, don't have books about how to be, uh, empowered and great and go out there and they feel like, you know, they, 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 um, they don't know where they fit in. Um, and I think that that's, that's okay. That's real. And if we don't offer a productive path for them within the movements that we've built, where we don't say show up and shut up, which is what we say to a lot of men, white men, um, in, I think feminist space. I mean, not, I think I've heard this recently in feminist spaces. Um, and, uh, if, if we say, no, no, you're part of this movement and you're, you'll be better off if you're part of it. Um, I think that that is, uh, that is just urgently needed or else they're going to go and they're going to, we're, we're sending them in the arms of, um, of, of the Jordan Pearsons of the world. Well, Liz Plank, thank you for delivering your book to our arms. You see thank how I did that? You. Yeah, see, you, I love you know, that. I got that? I, see, love that. I'm a, I'm I like arms. I'm a professional podcaster. Yeah. The, name of your book, <laughs> the name of your book again is? For the Love of Men, A Vision for Mindful Masculinity. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Hey, good return episode, right? Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and please rate us if you like what you hear. I'll see you next month. Adios. Mm-hmm.